0: From Occupy Wall Street to the National Association of Evangelicals, there are echoes of what was called the social gospel a hundred years ago. This movement coined the phrase, what would Jesus do? And for three years running, its pivotal text by its leading figure, Walter Rauschenbusch, sold more copies than any religious book after the Bible. Rauschenbusch called for Christians to be at the forefront of social renewal, healing that era's social crisis. But his subject headings alone sound oddly present. The morale of the workers, the physical decline of the people, the wedge of inequality. Fast forward to today, and Walter Rauschenbusch's great-grandson, Paul Rauschenbusch, is the religion editor of the Huffington Post. We have some fun this hour. We learn some things about re-emerging strains in the DNA of Christianity. And we take in a counterintuitive view of religion and culture from an emerging realm of our time. Paul Rauschenbusch likes to recall a complaint from a blogger named Grumpy to one of his posts on the Huffington Post. Now I have seen it all. The Huff Post asking what would be the correct thing to do from a religious standpoint. I cannot believe I am seeing this on the Huff Post. Paul Rauschenbusch replied, Well, Grumpy, believe it.
1: People are surprised, but that's my standard line. This is good, but it could be a little more Uh, (laughs) religion-y. And by religion-y, I just mean go deep into your tradition. Don't be shy about it. From
0: APM American Public Media, I'm Krista Tippett. Today on Being, Occupying the Gospel. Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch has been senior religion editor of the Huffington Post since that section's launch in 2010. He also spent nine years as chaplain and associate dean of religious life at Princeton University. He grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, where Walter Rauschenbusch's son settled with his wife, who happened to be the daughter of Louis Brandeis, the first Jewish Supreme Court justice. Despite his noble lineage, Paul says, he only distinguished himself religiously in his early years by being the first person to flunk out of Presbyterian confirmation. And you, of course, had in your DNA and in your family history... um, this great American Christian religious figure of Walter Rauschenbusch, were how much how aware of that were you of him? Um, how did you become aware of him growing up?
1: You know, we really weren't particularly aware of him. I think we may have said one of his prayers at Thanksgiving. He has beautiful prayers. So if people are interested in Walter Rauschenbusch, they should first go to the prayers because they really are. The right mm-hmm. door to understanding uh, who he was. So he has a he had a beautiful Thanksgiving uh, prayer that we would read on Thanksgiving or occasionally at <laughs> Grace. Um, but you know, my my parents were very reluctant to kind of get into. Well, you have this important great grandfather, mm-hmm. or well, and you also had uh, two important
0: great grandfathers, right? And the other was,
1: right, uh, and so Justice and so, Brandeis. yeah. Brandeis was actually much more the kind of overwhelming figure. And, okay. and I, I knew much more about Brandeis than I did uh, Rauschenbusch. And it was only later, actually, in seminary and, and even beyond when I started to read Rauschenbusch and really began to actually resonate with you know, what his message was and found myself just loving his writing style and what he had to say. And he felt so fresh and contemporary and funny and heartrending, and So that's when I really began to... Realized that um, actually, I kind of had a kindred spirit with him, mm. uh, but it wasn't you know it really wasn 't a part of growing up uh, you know Rauschenbusch was in the background
0: so let 's talk about this person of Walter Rauschenbusch because he really was uh, a very important figure um, in the early, very early twentieth century. Um, you know he was an exemplar and a very strong voice in the roots of American Protestantism and indeed um, what it called itself evangelicalism um, that were socially activist, this social gospel movement that people roughly date between something like 1880 and 1920. Say something about that, that world that he helped create and that he, that he came out of.
1: Well, you know, talking about the world he came out of is really important because Mm -hmm. Walter was the seventh generation of pastors who um, his father came over as a Lutheran missionary to the United States, uh, became a Baptist, uh, taught at a a German Baptist seminary. And uh, Walter was raised in a very evangelical atmosphere. Uh, Went to seminary and, you know, it was a time when people were beginning to talk about historical critical method. People were beginning to talk about, well, what is the gospel saying to the situation in the world? Uh, Rauschenbusch's first pastorate was in Hell's Kitchen in New York City, which was at that time very aptly named. Uh, Uh It was a really rough heart of the world, and he dates his real conversion to that experience. He, his first book was dedicated to the people of that pastorate who opened his eyes for a second time. Because you know the what he said about that time, he said, "I just kept burying too many babies. The little boxes they broke my heart." And so he had to, he went down there to kind of you know transform their spirits and evangelize in a traditional way, and then he became um determined because he said well what does the gospel say about the lives of these people that are being crushed by poverty I have to I have to as a pastor I have to deal with this I have to deal with the body the, these mm. lives and he went back to the Bible and he has this great parable like uh, a, a a man was walking through the woods and all around him were the warbling of songbirds and yet he didn't hear any of it because he was a botanist and I think that <laughs> this yeah. is a great great metaphor for how we approach the Bible. Huh. You know, we, we we see there what we are expecting to see. And then when he went back with these eyes opened by, you know, the suffering of his congregation, he saw all these calls for social renewal and the, the idea that the gospel also dealt with the person and with the lives on this earth, not just afterlife, but this life.
0: Now, he took the um, Old Testament prophets— as his as his guide and, and as his models. And I, I love something that he wrote about them, um, just the way he wrote that. People, uh, people, figures like Amos and Hosea and Isaiah and Jeremiah, they lived in the open air of national life. Every heartbeat of their nation was registered in the pulse throb of the
1: prophets. <laughs> Isn't that great? Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, and he, and he thought that Jesus was, you know, the heir of that. That tradition, that Jesus was the heir and the culmination of the prophetic tradition, and that Jesus had kind of brought that into fruition, and that to understand Jesus, we had to look at the prophets. Mm.
0: And, you know, I could imagine somebody listening to this and saying, well, we've had Christians um, enter public life, and and what that has meant is is entering uh, political life. Um, and it's associated with a number of issues. Um, I I think it's important, though, to to really, um, you know, to paint this canvas here, because, in fact, Walter Rauschenbusch, in many ways, was quite a different kind of character, and the social gospel was different. I mean, so let's just flesh that out. I mean, he he had this insistence on that it's wrong to think of religious morality as the only thing God cares about. He said the social problems... Are moral problems on a larger scale?
1: I think Rauschenbusch was, in some ways, a skeptic of r- religion. Okay. Just as he was a pastor and uh, you know a, a national figure on the religious scene, he he didn't de facto take the authority of religious figures. He said they they always had to be set up against a test of how they would bring people together. Will they make us Mm -hmm. a more cohesive, more loving, more positive society? Mm. He also said that about Christians. You know, it's, people can be converted and they'd be worse than they were before. Jesus said that about, you know, the, the Pharisees making converts and making them twice as fit for hell. So it wasn't just a fact of being more religious. It wasn't a fact of being more religious, like a certain kind of religion, Baptist or anything like that. It was really about how are you converted to this wider project of making a more beautiful world where actually heaven is created on earth and we can identify that by people living together peacefully and with equanimity and with more equality.
0: I'm Krista Tippett and this is On Being, Conversation about Meaning, Religion, Ethics, and Ideas. Today, Occupying the Gospel with Huffington Post religion editor Paul Rauschenbusch. His great-grandfather, Walter Rauschenbusch, went on sabbatical to Germany in 1907, just as his book, Christianity and the Social Crisis, was published. He came home a year later to find himself a celebrity. The dedication page of his book was a shortened section from the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. Rauschenbusch's de-emphasis on the afterlife and his insistence on the social responsibility of Christians in this life was criticized by some as leftist, even Marxist. But he had a strong friendship with his contemporary, the capitalist John D. Rockefeller. In the 1960s, Martin Luther King Jr. cited Rauschenbusch as a deeply formative influence and Walter Rauschenbusch is read and studied in seminaries all kinds of seminaries still today. He considered himself evangelical and he saw Dwight Moody, now revered as a founding father of modern evangelicalism, as his forebear. I know you've been inside this history, but but this there was also um a rift that developed in that time, right? I mean, there was, there was some parting of the ways among, between different kinds of Protestants. And in fact, um, there was a retreat from, from public life, which in fact was, um, in some ways, those were the forebears of, of today's evangelicals who, who reentered public life in the last few decades. Can you say a little bit about how that worked and what the dynamics and issues there were?
1: what 's interesting when Rauschenbusch started, he hadn 't thought about the personal element of the faith, might also hold that you know kind of in concert with okay. one another and then and then, unfortunately, a split developed. And, you know, for instance, the social gospel was never Rauschenbusch's term. He didn't like that term. Oh, I didn't he know that. He later used it. Yeah, mm-hmm. he, he, he later used it in his last book. Mm-hmm. But he always resisted. He said, it's just the gospel. There is no social gospel or private gospel. It's mm-hmm. just the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you had these uh, divisions, and and people felt uh, like it was just uh, you know that the, there was no transcendent value to it, that it was just Marxism, yeah. and, and so people forget that Rauschenbusch actually worked with um, Moody, you know, a very kind of right, tradition. right I mean, Moody, yeah, yeah, you know, to, to, to he translated some of his uh, his works into German, and so you know, I mean, there there was a, there was a cohesion there at the beginning that Rauschenbusch it, was, it broke his heart. I mean, you know, his his father hes you know all a lot of his colleagues at the seminary there was a really big effort for him to bring keep people together. But afterwards, there, there was a strong split. And what's so interesting for me today is many of the descendants of those people who split off you know, from the social gospel into fundamentalism or evangelicals are now actually some of the most interested people in what the social elements of the gospel have to say, these young, right. mostly young evangelicals who are all of a sudden saying, wait a second, mm-hmm. what does this have to do with the poverty? I see around me and they become very active. So what I'm really actually thrilled about right now is this kind of, in a sense, reuniting of the social and the private um, religious fervor and and in some ways working together to to really see some of the common um, issues that we all want to face, such as, you know, such as hunger. I mean, a very basic one, poverty. Right, right. I remember when I first released uh, Christianity the Social Crisis, uh, the the 100th anniversary edition, and I contacted Brian McLaren and I said, hey, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of Rauschenbusch, but, you know, I this. Part of the this, emerging
0: church movement.
1: Right, mm-hmm. right. And and he said, oh, you know, he wrote me back this amazing email, said, I've heard of Rauschenbusch and, and I heard all these sermons growing up about how awful he was and how mm-hmm. evil the social gospel was. And then I finally read it and I realized, oh my God, this is what I've been waiting for my whole life. So he had come this half circle towards, you know, Know, wholeness, and and I myself had actually become a little, you know, more invested in the spiritual element hmm. of the gospel because of the way the trajectory my life took.
0: i say some more about that about that trajectory for you.
1: So, <laughs> so you know, I went to college and I majored in religion, and um, but. I became much more interested in rock and roll and the rock and roll lifestyle. And part of my history is just, you know, getting clean and mm-hmm. going to a, ha- a rough halfway house in South Boston and having a this old craggy Irish Catholic drunk woman, you know, uh, ex-drunk. I mean, she was a sober <laughs> drunk, but she, would, she she she, you know, would put my shoes under my bed and she would say – and I would like, Marilyn, why are you putting my shoes under my bed? And she says, I want you on your knees praying. Mm-hmm. And oh. so and the whole thing was this kind of transformation. I, that's when I started to pray again. And that's actually where I heard the Lord's Prayer again, oh. you know, because you pray that in, right. in a Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. And so it was yeah. like this, oh, I became such a part of my life. Mm. And then to kind of go back, you know, later to go into seminary and see like what part of the, the Lord's Prayer Played in Rauschenbusch's life and his thinking, and just realizing this is all a piece. Mm-hmm. This is all a part of the whole, mm-hmm. and it was it, it was so beautiful. So for, for me, um, you know, it's it's been an ongoing process of uh, a, you know beautiful discovery.
0: And so you you went to Princeton, is this right? In two thousand three. Is that when you started uh, working? Yeah, there? I
1: mean, I, I you know I had a, a series of different kinds of jobs. I worked uh-huh. at the Riverside Church, and okay. you know, I, I had worked as a chaplain in a drug rehab center in Brazil, and all, all sorts of street kids in Seattle. <laughs> um, and, but I was uh, got called to serve as the associate dean of religious life in the chapel at Princeton in two thousand three, which was an incredible honor and privilege.
0: And you know, I can imagine that. Um, that this you know this path that you'd walked which was growing up with religion as an influence leaving it behind coming back with some curiosity um i think that that's a that's a pretty common trajectory in this culture and um i don't know i'm just curious about what you discovered there how you also understood that in terms of your own journey and also this this legacy of reason which which i almost feel like you kind of embody as much as uh, know about. How you then brought this life and legacy of yours then together with this life of students um, in our age.
1: The great thing about religion at a place like Princeton is that the students really care about knowledge. They're very curious they want to know. They're, they, um, they're not willing to, you know, kind of X anything out very quickly. And so I, one of the kind of daunting things was I never had to kind of say, hey, everybody pay attention. I mean, they were there, you know, I mean, they were yeah. interested and they were looking for authenticity. I think that the, what the, what young people are looking for more than anything is authenticity. They want to know. They're looking for meaning. They're looking for truth. They're really trying to work these things out in a lot of different ways. And I found the Interest in religion coming from all different religious traditions. I mean, what's interesting is how much interest there is in religion on university campuses these days. I
0: don't know that that story's really been told, but people. Yeah,
1: it's it's amazing. I mean, you know, there there is incredible attendance in all different religious traditions. There's great interest. I mean, I I had a group of about twenty five students who applied to be on this interfaith council, and you know, often we could only accept about 30 percent of the people who applied to be part of this interfaith council, which means that and, – and all of them were qualified. I mean it, it just means that there was a hunger for these conversations, mm-hmm. for honest, truthful, authentic conversations. It was, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. I, I always say that one of the reasons I'm so hopeful about the world is because I got to work with students for a long time also in such a kind of – heightened intellectual atmosphere, which really, you know, approves of curiosity, approves of uh, exploration. And that's, I think we need more spaces like that in our churches and synagogues and mosques where we really approve of that kind of curiosity, where that's part of what we think of as a religious message rather than certainty. Actually, curiosity is what defines a religious person.
0: This conversation with Paul Rauschenbusch sent us looking for his great-grandfather's prayers. They are poetic and filled with imagery from the natural world. The Thanksgiving prayer mentioned earlier draws to a close with these lines. Grant us a heart wide open to all this beauty and save our souls from being so blind that we pass unseeing when even the common thorn bush is aflame with your glory. Find that prayer and another one we loved at onbeing.org. Though I'd read Walter Rauschenbusch when I studied theology, I hadn't realized until now that the phrase, what would Jesus do, came out of his social gospel movement. In our time, the acronym WWJD is pasted on car bumpers and threaded into bracelets and associated with evangelical Christianity and an emphasis on personal morality. But in its origins a century ago, it was primarily an expression of the conviction that social justice issues are moral issues writ large. So we called up a theologian, John DiCaputo, to hear the fascinating and little-known story behind this phrase. It's also a story of the nature of the split between what we now know as evangelical Christianity and mainline Protestantism. It's a split, as Paul Rauschenbusch points out, that new generations are reframing. Find more on our blog at onbeing.org. Coming up, what happens when a theologian from an historic Christian lineage takes up religion on today's online frontier?
1: It's very funny because I'm always saying, this is really interesting, but could you make it more religion-y? I think people, you know, sometimes when people approach me initially, they think they have to kind of uh, erase out the specificity in order to make it okay for everyone. I'm like, no, 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 no. I really want you to reference the richness of your tradition so that I can learn.
0: I'm Krista Tippett. This program comes to you from APM, American Public Media.
1: American Public Media announces The Splendid Table's new book, How to Eat Weekends, with dozens of new recipes now available at bookstores nationwide.
0: I'm Krista Tippett. Today on Being, Occupying the Gospel. My guest, Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch, is the great-grandson of Walter Rauschenbusch. He was a galvanizing social activist Christian leader of the early 20th century. Martin Luther King Jr. said he learned from Rauschenbusch, quote, that any religion that professes to be concerned about the souls of men and is not concerned about the social conditions that cripple them is a spiritually moribund religion awaiting burial. Paul Rauschenbusch is a rock and roll producer turned college chaplain and now editor of the Huffington Post religion section. He helped launch it in February 2010. So you, from those earliest days, committed yourself openly to... um so convening a discussion that was going to, ha- that was going to happen between the this, this strident polls of um, strident religious voices on one end and um, strident voices, as you named, on the atheist side who denigrate religious people and their traditions. But you're doing this on on Huffington Post, which itself has you know, a very, let's say, a liberal reputation um, and can take a, a very um, liberal, strident tone. How do you walk that line? Is that a challenge?
1: You know, we don't really, you know, honestly, it's not about left, right, liberal, conservative. In some ways, it's about trying to figure out, like, how do you live life well? I mean, we do have people who come in with really hardcore uh, political views, and then they say, and Jesus said, love your neighbor. And I'm always like, that's kind of lazy. You know, I mean, (laughs) let's really actually start with what Jesus said. And then, like if whatever evolves from that. But I really sometimes say, you know, it's not okay. It, what I'm not looking for is just like political view plus Jesus. It has to be like really, it, you know, more and more. I'm getting, I'm getting a, a much broader kind of audience and Mm -hmm. much broader kind of writing, um, you know, uh, bloggers who are really interested in being a part on the same page, not necessarily agreeing with, but on the same page as people who think differently. And so we're really trying to get beyond this kind of left, right. um, You know, I'm actually, the one thing I really don't, like on the page is is like people who are just so stridently anti-religion that they're just like all religious people are idiots. I mean, that's a, that a lot I'll of just, the comment. The comments. Yeah, we have a lot of comments uh-huh. like that. I don't think that you know. I I kind of feel like. You know, the women's section of the site wouldn't have, like, blatant misogynists. I mean, you know, we we, mm. we don't have to have people who just hate religion and think, you know, simplistic ideas that religion is the source of all evil. I mean, that's it, just But what's, I mean, non- what's that
0: about? I mean, where, where do you nonsense. see that coming from in our culture? Because it is a kind of stridency that resides more on the liberal, you know, whatever these labels mean in, in American secular liberal culture, though, isn't it? Or, I don't know. Do we I, th-
1: know that? I i Yeah, I mean, I th- that may be the case now. It certainly wasn't the case with, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. or, you know, yeah. other people. They, You know, I mean, I just – I think it's a fairly recent phenomenon. But the idea of, you know, liberal versus religious is just a crazy dichotomy. Uh, and it, it doesn't take into account any of the actual history of America. Uh, so, you know, I want to say one other thing about that, you mm-hmm. know, that – there are atheists who are interested in interfaith conversations, and there are secularists who really want to be part of a conversation about meaning. And I think that's important. I do. I always want to know, okay, so what are the secularists bringing to the table? Mm-hmm. Like in one terms of, my of cousins positive ret- content well in terms of tradition i mean mm-hmm. my 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 cousin Dick Rorty, who wrote the afterword to the christianity' social crisis was a very famous secular humanist who was you know a philosopher um and a pragmatist and and you know one of the one of the most well known philosophers of the twentieth century and and he was an amazing man who i would love i love to hear him talk I love to hear his ideas I thought it was so important what he had to say so what i'm I, what I'm looking for for people who are not religious or who are come from a secular humanist tradition is bring it. Where do you find your roots? You know, figure out what you believe and why you believe it.
0: Hmm. And do you think that's a challenge for, for modern people? I mean, I feel like yeah. there's a few generations here, especially when say, you and I were growing up, where where it was actually not – an intelligent, educated thing to have deep convictions and present them.
1: <laughs> do you know what I
0: mean? Because in fact, it might work against tolerance and pluralism.
1: Right. I think that the, the idea of, um, I mean, in some ways, it, it ties into this idea of, okay, we're we're all, I, what do I want to say about that? It's, in our pers- interpersonal conversations, people never talked about religion. I didn't even – only later did I figure out that a couple of my good friends in high school were Jewish. We just never talked about it.
0: Right. And and didn't know how to talk about it, right? I mean didn't actually we're, have a robust, intelligent uh, vocabulary for talking about it outside the confines of our Well, we were told not cases. to
1: talk about right, it. Right, right. You know, I mean, religion is something you don't talk about. Uh, and and so it was, it, we privatized it in such a way that that we didn't have the language to talk about it, um, and I think that that was a polite way to to interact. But but going, it's it's such an amazing thing. The moment you ask someone like, "What do you really believe? What is you know what do you, what is your tradition?" Ugh, it opens everything up.
0: So. I, I think you're getting at something that actually is quite striking when you when you go to the Huffington Post religion site. And there's there's a lot a lot going on there, but you know there's a lot of stuff that's very straightforward um, that I hadn't thought about it this way. But it, it does it is along the lines of developing a vocabulary and a basic knowledge. Right? What is Sharia and why does it matter? What does the Bible actually say about gay marriage? Um, you've told me that. Uh, some of the things some of the pieces that get passed around the most are are about scripture about yeah. <laughs> Tell me about yeah. that. I mean, what gets past your Well, tell yeah. me. Yeah, it's,
1: it's, it's it's you know, some of the, you know, we started doing these pieces where it was, you know, just what does the Bible say about women? You know, what is the Bible? You know, one of the biggest pieces to date is this piece that said, you know, five things you should know about the Bible. And, you know, it's very important to for me to have intelligent voices about what Scripture is. And so, you know, to have a piece about Sharia law, I mean, we were, we're talking about Sharia all the time as if we know what it is. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so we better know what it is. And so to get the foremost scholar on Sharia to write a piece about it so that we can actually have an intelligent conversation about it. I mean, you have to know. One of the things, one of the traditions that I love from the, the Brandeis household was if they would they would be having a conversation and if they didn't know a fact, they would actually stop and look it up until they before they continued whereas and they didn't even tendency, have
0: ipads right no they didn't have an ipad <laughs>
1: they would actually go to the encyclopedia you know right. i mean it's a really very funny huh. you know i mean uh, our tendency is just to go okay well whatever let's you know right. let's keep going no i mean the opportunity here with the internet is that it's you can if you're if you know how to sift through a lot of the garbage that's on the internet you can find real knowledge and mm-hmm. that's part of what My job, I feel, this ministry, that's the reason I'm doing this, is it feels like a calling, is to push as much positive, as much productive, as much intelligent information out into the web as possible.
0: has surprised you either that's come in or that that people have read and commented on and passed around in that online world?
1: I think what's been interesting for me, you know, we've had we do have these all these, you know, comments that come in and very kind of vicious, you know. You know, it's like a very kind sometimes of mean a big and, contrast
0: between the the high tone of the the, the blog pieces yeah, and the yeah, low yeah, tone just like of the, the commentary.
1: The fight that happens on the comments. Yeah. But what was interesting for me personally to experience was the, when I had the tragedy and my nephew died, and it was just a, just a heartrending thing. And I, I published my the the eulogy I gave in, in honor of Sam and. Um,
0: he was and, a
1: young man, right 20. yeah, he was 20. I mean it was just awful. Uh, and he you know I, I made myself vulnerable. It was very clear and um, and the comments were so amazing because they were talking about you know people who they lost and then there was this one person who wrote like, "Well, I'm sorry about your nephew, but you know God is a fairy tale and you shouldn't. And the rest of the commenters all kind of ganged up on him and said, listen, mm-hmm. what are you doing?" Hmm. You know, so there is a soul out there, you know, and, and I think that I know. But I think that, that, that what's been interesting for other pieces like that, when people are vulnerable, people will pass it along and say, did you see this? Because we're all hurting left, right. It doesn't matter. People hurt. People go through pain. People, you know, are, are, tr- are looking for um, for some some sense that they're not alone. It's not just kind of you know knowledge or kind of you know ideas. it's it's also about you know the truth of of life, the truth of what people are going through. And if you can convey that, um, I think it's respected on the web.
0: It's interesting. I mean, you hear a lot about the web as this free-for-all. I mean that that it's too much information. I mean, it's open to an extreme, but I don't know that I've heard people talking about vulnerability online and I wonder if you think maybe that, because say one thing I am I really treasure in religious traditions that I think is in contrast to our culture is that they actually honor human vulnerability and, you know, meet us there and ask us to make sense there. And do you think that it's because of the subject matter of Huffington Post religion, um, That maybe something special in terms of people showing vulnerability and responding to it online becomes possible. I don't know.
1: That's what what I'm hoping for. I mean, uh I think of, yeah, I think of prayer services where people say, you know what, I've lost my job and I'm really I just need prayer. You know, I mean I I used to when I worked at Riverside we would have, you know, prayer services like that. And so what I would like is, you know, is is for people to have that sense of meeting someone there, even if they're not of the same religion, even if they're not of, you know, don't agree on many social issues. If I, I want people to to actually feel like there's a <laughs> a basic humanity uh, to the site. We had an ongoing series every day. This uh, this imam wrote about Ramadan and about what he was going through and about the thoughts and the difficulties and all this kind of stuff. And it was very personal and very beautiful. And I was following it and I was just like, wow, this is such an insight into someone else's heart uh, that is from a completely different religious tradition than mine. And it felt like an honor to be able to read it.
0: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, a conversation about meaning, religion, ethics, and ideas. Today, Occupying the Gospel, with Huffington Post religion editor Paul Rauschenbusch. What do you feel, what have you learned, what new sense or ideas do you have about American religious life, not politics, but the religious life in this country, Mm, how has this experience of Huffington Post religion, of working on this online, in fact, creating a new space for this, um, what, what do you know now or what feels more important to you that you didn't see before, didn't grasp before?
1: I think how eager everyone is to be on the same page. And to I be mean on the that page. kind of hmm. not the, not thinking the same thing, mm-hmm. but being together on the same page.
0: Hmm. I see. Yeah, you know,
1: yeah, by page I mean the Huffington <laughs> the Post page. religion. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. so I, you know, kind of intentionally made that a little confusing because uh-huh. you know I think we see this around questions of you know what's the role of pluralism in American society? How are we going to understand um, our Muslim neighbors? You know how are we going to deal with the true humanity of you know, gay people? You know all of these things that are um, in the mix. I see how much you know the the Sikhs, the Hindus, the Buddhists. Uh, all, everybody is kind of you know looking to have a voice, to be a part of a, a general conversation. And I I'm hoping that that actually reflects what's going on in America. I think that, but but I think that in some ways that there is a there's a question there. Um, are there some people who just, you know, kind of refuse to be in the same space as people who they view as other?
0: But, you know, I think something that's worth teasing out is, uh, you know, when you say on the same page, I think it can um, – not this new online way but the old way. It, it can suggest agreement and it can, it can suggest at least kind of a surface agreement. That may not be oh, yeah. very rich or interesting, but, but one of the emphases for you, I mean, I think personally as well as as an editor, is that you really – and maybe this is the Walter, Walter Rauschenbusch gene uh, and you also – that you really want people to be grounded in their texts and traditions. And so, I mean, it's interesting that, that you can create this diverse space, um, but there's so much going on that is about that kind of, of grounding, Um, in in one's own beliefs as well as, as you said, the curiosity about others and that there's no contradiction there.
1: No, no. In fact, I'm always – it's very funny because I'm always saying uh – this is really interesting, but could you make it uh, more religion-y? Uh, you know, like, could you really – like, I think people, you know, sometimes when people approach me initially, they think they have to kind of uh, erase out the specificity mm-hmm. in order to make it kind of okay for everyone. I'm mm-hmm. like, no, 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 no. It'll be much more interesting for everyone if you go deep into the, what your specific tradition is. Mm-hmm. That'll be a much more interesting read for me. I don't – I, I want to know – Actually, what the Hindu roots of your understanding of, you know, of life or loss or I I really want you to reference the richness of your tradition so that I can so that I can learn. Mm-hmm. So I'm always kind of going you know it's very it's very funny like it, it, people are surprised but that's my standard line. This is good but it could be a little more religiony. Uh yeah. <laughs> And by religion-y, I just mean go deep into your tradition. Don't be shy about it. And and I think one of the one of the, the sad things I guess about my my own kind of upbringing and this is not my parents fault, believe me. I'm the one who skipped confirmation. <laughs> but how um you know just how maybe
0: generationally you
1: know, it may be generation, but I, but I, I do, you know, I think that the idea of going deep into scripture, going deep into tradition, and finding its richness is something that that is you know I want to make sure that the the, the mainline church, which is you know my tradition, makes sure that they appreciate how important it is to to know the Bible to get deep into the Bible to get to know you know the great thinkers, the great sages the great wisdom um, teachers of our own tradition, and then you can go out and and be a conversant when you talk to a Jewish person who has done the same thing in their tradition, it'll make the conversation way more interesting. Mm -hmm. It's exciting. And again, it goes back to this curiosity. Curiosity about the other, but curiosity about where you come from. Learning from your grandparents. What's the intellectual tradition you come from? What's the spiritual tradition you come from?
0: And just to speak to that eagerness too, um, I just remember looking at, say, for example, a video piece you did where you you just went out on the street and you asked people about prayer, right? About their prayer life? Yeah. What was the question you asked? What do
1: you... Oh, I just said, What do you think about prayer?
0: Yeah, and how do you pray? Did you? But so was. Well,
1: that was a, a follow up. You know, it was what basically, th- I just was like, You know, yeah. hey, um, you know, what do you think about prayer? You but know, what was, it was so really... interesting
0: is how people engage that question. Right, so 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 differently, yeah. yeah. So there is the fact that we haven't known how to talk about this, and we haven't talked about it. But it's like when you just walked up to people and asked that simple question, they were absolutely ready to go there with you, and we shared much more than I expected in every case.
1: Oh yeah, and there was so much more that you know. Of course, we couldn't include like you know, like always, but it was just it was amazing, and it was very you know, you just kind of sense that people wanted to talk for a long time about it. You um, know, and, yeah. and that's what thats what everybody's walking around with, mm. kind of a, a hunger to have this conversation about what's dear to them. Mm. Um, and even if it's not dear to them, you know, like, I don't pray. Like one person just was like, she wanted to talk. She was like, I, I don't pray. I, I'm agnostic. But, you know, but I think it's this. You know, I mean, it was oh. just it was very beautiful. It was mm. like an engagement with an idea. And that's people have a lot to say. We have so much to learn from one another. So, what do you think when I say prayer?
0: Um, I just think about people who believe in God and are trying to um, embrace their lives in a better way.
1: It's, uh, it's honestly just a, a big break from life for me. Um, I often do it because it's, it's therapeutic. And do you think it works? Um, I think if you believe it works. I mean, it doesn't have to be like a traditional prayer. You don't have to believe like in God or Allah or something like that. Just as long as you believe in something. That's excellent. So do you ever pray? No. <laughs> I'm
0: agnostic, so I don't pray.
1: And do you meditate or anything like that that uh, that kind of puts you in touch with the universe?
0: Yeah, I do meditate.
1: Any other things you want to say about prayer? No, I'm all in favor, Robert. That's about it. <laughs>
0: I I wanted to quote you some lines of your great-grandfather, Walter Raschenbusch, we started out talking about. um, Religion is a tremendous generator of self-sacrificing action. If the hydraulic force of religion could be turned toward conduct, there is nothing which it could not accomplish. Mm. I I really like that. Mm. I've thought, and I've said openly, so Christian voices in particular re-entered public life and political life in a big way in this country if you decades ago but it it's not associated with with conduct it's associated with issues but i wondered i mean when you hear those lines about this hydraulic force of religion um could be if it could be turned toward conduct there's nothing which it could not accomplish now do you, do you believe that and and what does that suggest to you what would you like to see that look like
1: uh, i think it's such an interesting quote and i I guess for me it's you know part of the history is is following the trajectory from from Rauschenbusch to Niebuhr to King as well as seeing you know the divergence of people who left and then came back. And part of what I see today is you know the power of religion is not just about like the hydraulic push but it's also the in some ways to hold back. You know what How does religion force me not to seek out more things, Mm. more power, Mm. more money? I think in some ways what he was talking about there is that religion has a power to make us put other things in front of our own drive towards accumulation, drive towards me, me, me. Mm. And so the power of religion in some ways is to choose not to do it. Um, Whether that's, you know, I will not pick up a gun. I will not um, destroy the environment. You know, I will not bully. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, the, Mm -hmm. the power of religion is to actually offer a transcendent vision of what's more than just me what's more than just my own needs and my own goals and to say actually I have to look at this with a bigger vision and that's you know for Rauschenbusch and, and for me it's it's still well what does the kingdom of heaven look like what is this you know what are we what what is a wider vision that will allow me to live my life in accordance with a higher ethic and and religion can do that it can help people it just you know part of the the effort here is to figure out how to navigate the religious voice so that it really does that in a responsible way um and a way that is is beneficial to to everyone
0: i know that in that letter in february 2010 where you introduced um huffington post religion you You also, um, and and since then, you've talked about the wanting it to be a place where religious and non-religious people can, in fact, interact, and that that non-religious people are ethical and moral um, beings as well. Has that happened? And do you see that as, um, you know, as something that's also evolving at this point as we move through the 21st century, that? That some of these important ethical discussions are also happening across that divide—not not different religious people, but religious and non-religious.
1: Yeah, absolutely, I I see you know the idea that religious people have some sort of monopoly on morality is 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 absurd. Uh, but but again, you know the question is is like okay, so where does your morality come from? You know, again, I bring in my uh, cousin, Richard Rorty, who had such a clear sense of where he was coming from and what he was drawing upon. He was a secular
0: how, atheist. He was a
1: secular humanist mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and frankly a boogeyman for a lot of, you know, the religious right. Uh, um, but, mm-hmm. you know— it, it, you know he he cared so deeply about people and the pragmatist tradition and how we were going to get better and how we were going to keep moving forward and that was someone who I just wanted to work side by side. I wish I could do half of what he accomplished and so um so there's 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 the opportunity here to really learn from one another and to really grow um I have something to learn from the pragmatist philosophical tradition. You know, uh, a great friend of mine and mentor is Cornell West, who also, you know, is came out of that tradition. Was a student of Dick Rorty's. Hmm. Um, so, so he's someone who is a professing Christian and also a pragmatist. We we have much to learn from one another.
0: Mm-hmm. So, um, how has this experience so far? This interactive online religious life that you live and foster. Um, you know, how, how has it? I think this is a very hard question to answer. I hate it when people ask me this, but I'm going to do it to you anyway. Yeah, great. How, how, do, how does it flow into your sense of faith and your? You know, how has it changed your sense of the place of religion, faith in our common life?
1: You know, I'm 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 not kind of a journalist. That's not my primary uh, sense of who I am. Is it's I my primary sense of who I am is as is a minister. As a minister, so. But how do I? How does it affect me personally yeah, is a it very shaped, is, is, yeah. is 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 it a, is it is kind of a harder question It's hard because you realize how much is out there mm-hmm. and in some ways like I, you know all day long, I'm reading opinions about what people think about the world and about the the ultimate questions um and you know what I have to be on guard against and i think um We all do is kind of saying, okay, yeah, that's just that, you know, kind of in some ways making it too simple when Mm. these things are so complex. Mm. Uh, And so so what I'm what I have to remember is that these all all of all of it represents lives. And and I have to make sure that I'm taking care of myself and I'm going, you know, being a part of some sort of spiritual community or, 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 or tradition so that I, it doesn't just become sort of you know, process the information. It becomes actually like remembering that each one of these people is a child of God, you know, honoring them uh, with what they have to say. Hmm. But it's tough because it's a very fast-paced place. You know, I have to be very careful about how I approach it and and keep my soul steady.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch is the senior religion editor for the Huffington Post. He edited Christianity and the Social Crisis in the 21st Century, a 100th anniversary edition of his great-grandfather Walter Rauschenbusch's classic text of the social gospel movement. The final chapter of that book includes these lines, "...the kingdom is always but coming. It is true that any effort at social regeneration is dogged by perpetual relapse and doomed forever to fall short of its aim." But the same is true of our personal efforts to live a Christian life. It is true also of every local church and of the history of the church at large. Whatever argument would demand the postponement of social regeneration to a future era will equally demand the postponement of personal holiness to a future life. We talked about Huffington Post religion this hour, but it's worth pointing out that there's a growing sphere of religion, news and discussion online with a vast array of viewpoints and approaches. Here are some of our favorites. CNN's belief blog, Christianity Today, USA Today's Faith and Reason, Religion Dispatches and The Revealer. I've contributed to a few of these as well as the Huffington Post. Find this list at onbeing.org, where you can also listen again, download this program, and much more. Like us at facebook.com slash onbeing, and follow us on Twitter, our handle at beingtweets. This program is produced by Chris Hegel, Nancy Rosenbaum, and Susan Lehm. Anne Breckville is our web developer. Special thanks this week to Christopher Evans. He's the author of The Kingdom is Always But Coming, A Life of Walter Rauschenbusch. Trent Gillis is our senior editor. Kate Moose is executive producer. And I'm Krista Tippett.
1: On Being is supported by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. And the Loose Foundation's Henry R. Loose Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. On Being is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis based private foundation.
0: Next time for Thanksgiving, The Poetry of Creatures. We explore a new reading of the Bible's sense of the relationship between human beings and the natural world. We speak with biblical scholar Ellen Davis, and Wendell Berry reads some of his poems. Please join us. This is APM, American Public Media.